Our fourth and final speaker is Marco Savaya Yank. He is the president of the Asia-Brazil Agro Alliance, and he's a member of the IFPRI Board of Trustees. We're very privileged to have him here with us. Thank you very much, Marco. Glad to be here, and uh, I'm very glad also to talk just the fishing game, Mauricio and Eric, uh, these wonderful presentations. Uh, what I'm going to do here is trying to link the Brazilian experience and Asia. I'm not going to talk about Africa. I think there's also a lot of learnings from Brazil to, to Africa, but because I'm living in Asia and I'm working there for three years, trying to open markets and to develop business and trade there between Brazil and Asia, I'd like to talk a little bit about that, that challenge. So, first of all, uh, I think that Maurice showed very well this big transformation where Brazil today is, a, is the third world exporter, exporting to more than 200 countries, a big tropical revolution in terms of technology, economies of scale, the same movements that Mary showed in the U.S. is happening in Brazil, very strong economies of scale in agriculture, high productivity, more than 3% a year of, of total productivity, and the bioenergy revolution also at the same time, especially through ethanol and bioelectricity. But uh, 40 years ago, 60 years ago, 40 to 60 years ago, it was not like that. Brazil was a very protected country, very low productivity, a lot of government interventions, high tariffs, export taxes, and net imports of a lot of products. Brazil was just exporting coffee, sugar, tropical products, but importing cotton, dairy, wheat, etc. What made this big transformation? Four elements. First, innovation, where Embrapa is one of the best cases, not the only one, but one of the important cases of Brazil of investment in tropical R&D. Deregulation, which means the reduction in government interventions and trade barriers. And this is one of the lessons to Africa and to Asia. Deregulation was very important after the 90s in terms of gaining productivity in agriculture. Eliminating subsidies, eliminating trade barriers. This was very important for productivity gains. Liberalization, liberalization in terms of market-oriented policies, especially liberalization in Brazil, but the other countries were not liberalizing which means that Brazil had to compete with many countries that were using subsidies. And, and, and this was good for the productivity movement. And finally, a strong migration of people from south to center west, from center west to center north, in terms of the Cerrados region. So farmers, small farmers that migrated from Europe to Brazil 100 years ago or more, Italians, Germans, Japanese, they had small-scale agriculture in the south. They came to Brazil to harvest coffee in Sao Paulo. And then they became the big producers of sugarcane. And then they migrate to the center-west of Brazil. And the, and the movement of scale was very important. So in the 70s and in the 80s, the migration of skilled farmers were based in tropical R&D, official rural credit, and intervention prices. It was not very impressive. <coughs> The very impressive migration was in the 90s and after, with efficiency gains, productivity, economies of scale, deregulation, and stronger demand. And, and this is why we see today that Brazil and China, China is also there, are leading the 
movement of productivity gains in agriculture. We can talk about China later. I'm not going to talk about this movement. Schengen knows very well. But uh, the movement uh, was, was much more impressive, the gains of total productivity in Brazil than in the US in the same period, in this period. So Brazil, because of this tropical revolution, was able to grow productivity more than the US, more than other BRICS countries, more than most of the, of the exporters in the world. What is Brazil exporting today? First product is soybeans. Soybeans is 30 billion dollars. And this is directly related to China. China wants to buy soybeans. They, they are now, they don't have a policy of self-sufficiency in soybeans. They have in many other products. And this was the reason of the revolution in Brazil, soybean grains. Then we have meat and leather, number two. Number three, sugar and ethanol. Number four, forest, coffee. Corn is growing very fast now, very fast, especially to Asia. And then we have cotton, orange juice, and others. It's not very different of the US exports. But uh, uh, the problem here is that in some, in some sectors here, we face a lot of protectionism. Uh, and I will talk about that uh, just now. So the big movement in our exports is, is that they are now going to Europe. In 2000, 43% was Europe. Today is 18% Europe. 19% was US and Canada, now it's 8%. And China was 4%, and now it's 30%. And other countries in Asia was 11, and now it's 18%. So the movement is a change of geography in terms of Europe and US in the direction of Middle East, Africa, and very especially Asia. And that's why I believe that we should connect more South America and Asia. In terms of Exports, soybeans is, is a very free market for us. We export to 87 countries. We don't face barriers. The only barriers we have is to, is to industrialize soybeans. So to produce soy meal or soy oil is more complicated. But soy grains is very easy to export. When we move to poultry, it's a different scenario. Reds are countries that are closed to Brazil. Yellows are countries where we have huge restrictions. Restrictions such as uh, tariff rate quotas, escalations, health restrictions, re religious concerns, uh, plant approvals, etc. So it's much more complicated to export uh, meat than to export soy. And this is poultry. And this is beef. And this is pork. So you see the, the, the huge difference of exporting soy, and then poultry, beef, and pork. So when we see, when we talk about building a supply chain between South America, Brazil, and Asia, the first issue is there is no integrated supply chains in agriculture, unfortunately. We have integrated supply chains in cell phones, in cars, in many other products, we don't have integration in agriculture yet. Countries are still protecting their farmers, their, their processors, so there's very little integration. But th there's a lot of opportunities. For example, if we look in meats, for example, Brazil is consuming 99 kilos per capita, developed countries 93 kilos per capita, developed countries are reducing the consumption, 
but the least developed countries are consuming 11 kilos. So almost 10%, 15% of what rich countries are consuming. And consumption is growing 1.7% a year, total meats, and 3.9% a year in poultry. So there's a lot of markets there. And we should develop those markets. One of the reasons that people eat very little meat in Asia is because meat is expensive, very expensive compared to Brazil or to Argentina or to Uruguay or to Australia even. Australia, no, Australia is a little more expensive. But most of the South American meat is, 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 very, is very cheap compared to what I see in Asia. And besides the cost, there is much more integration in the value chains in Brazil than in Asia. So there's a reason here to talk about integration. And my question is, how can countries afford food security, food safety, affordability, and sustainability with import restrictions and self-sufficiency policies? This doesn't work. It's very difficult to imagine autarky, an autarky model in terms of agriculture. So we needed to consider the possibility to integrate the food chains. And integration means coming from grains to retail. And here I'm, I am using the case of, of, of the meats. You see, there's a lot of problems in the food chain. Low yields, heterogeneity of farmers, diseases, lack of refrigeration, pollution, loss and waste. And we should integrate from, from, from the supply side, from upstream to downstream, using technology, productivity, sustainability, infrastructure, value-added products. On the other side, from, from the downstream to the, to the upstream, we, we, we see a huge movement of, of uh, food safety, quality, traceability, certifications, etc. So it's huge movements on both sides of the food chain. And what we need to see here is much more integration. Not only <coughs> vertical integration in terms of, for example, integration between farmers, processors, and input industries, like we have today in Brazil, but also horizontal integration, like, like exactly Mauricio showed, between crop, planted forests, and livestock, and also across-the-board integration, which means going beyond the model where we are just exporting grains, soybeans, from Mato Grosso to China, because our number one product leaves Mato Grosso, 2,000 kilometers by truck, very small ports, very low, low ships, crosses the world to feed animals in China. Is this efficient in terms of carbon, in terms of water, in terms of energy? Moving beans from one side of the world to the other side, or we should integrate the food chains much more than we have today. And then we could have a better balance of water, carbon, energy, etc. So my, I think the big challenge that we have today, if we look at the expansion of OECD in the, in the 50s, was an expansion from US to Europe and to Japan and to Oceania. This is the OECD countries. Today, the big movement is this one. This is the big challenge today. It's coming from Asia to Africa and South America, not only in terms of commodities, not only in terms of trade among emerging countries, but also investments to secure supply chains, 
in processing, trading, and infrastructure, and the big challenge of integrating global value chains between these two regions. Uh, I don't have time to, to talk about this graph, but <coughs> this is just to show you that there is a movement here from food security in some countries to food safety in other countries like China today. China, China is the key country in food safety today. Value added, which is the major concerns in, in, in Brazil and in Latin America, and in Europe and US, new claims such as uh, antibiotics-free, GM-free, organic, veggie, bio, etc. So there's, there's different steps, different drivers, different speeds in the world, uh, 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 and this is the world today. It's, it's not one case, but in many countries you have all those things happening at the, at the same time, in some countries more than in others. And finally, just to finish here, uh, what I think that are the old and the new agendas, uh, just trying to, to sum up my presentation, the old agenda, the agenda that I learned since the 60s or the 70s is food security. The new agenda is food safety, quality, value-added, and new trends. In the past, we talked about commodities and spot markets. Today, we talk about contracts, traceability, certification, sustainability in all senses. The old agenda was traditional markets, wet markets, still very important in Africa and Asia. The new agenda is refrigeration, modern retail, food service, quick service restaurants, etc. The, the old agenda was tariffs and TRQs. The new agenda is non-tariff barriers today, very important. This is the major problem today to, for trade. The old agenda was WTO and mega regionals. The new agenda is back to bilaterals and back to new mercantilism as we are seeing today between US and China. This is another topic to talk today <laughs> because we are back to the, to the mercantilist negotiations. Old agenda was focusing developed countries, rich countries today, emerging economies. Old agenda, commodity exporters, new agenda, consolidation, local players, and global integrated food chains. So very quickly, thank you very much, and let's talk. Let's, let's talk.